0: Well, we are in a series. I, we keep saying I don't know how long this is going to last. I, I, it could be that it's just going to take us through the summer. We'll see. It could spill over into September a little. I'm, I'm not positive yet. But this is the sermon series that we are in together. The Bible tells a story and that you have a part to play. And every week we're kind of chipping away at that schematic that's going to pop up on the screen. Every week we're doing a little piece of it, a little part of it and 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 so if if you are visiting if you're watching from online you can whether it's through our website or on the YouTube channel you can go back and see this series it's the longest series that we've ever done in the history of the church but we said we were going to take this year to 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 tell the big story of the Bible right from Genesis to Revelation how does it all fit And tie together. How does it all fit and tie together? And so the next slide that's going to come up is kind of where we've gotten to. So we've done quite a bit. This is tonight is a part one of part two. We're right there on the to the right of the cross where it says John 1 12 to 13. We did a a part one of receiving and believing, and tonight is going to be part two of receiving and believing. It's kind of maybe like three little mini sermons work together. If you're visiting, you should always ask yourself the question, is the pastor getting ready to go on vacation, or are they coming back from vacation? Because they have a lot to say on both of those weeks. And we are heading out for vacation. Somebody that's been a part of City Life for a long time might say, no, he's really like that every week. So yeah, I think Vanessa said right a little bit too loud, a little bit too loud. Hey, I'm going to start. I'm going to make you nervous. Can I make you nervous? (laughs) Thank you. You're welcome. I'm going to read three posts that I read this week, and then I'm going to give you the name of the person that wrote them. Oh, that makes you nervous, doesn't it? You're like, right now, you're scrolling through your mind. What did I write? What did I write? What did I write? Or you're thinking of your spouse. What did they write? What did they write? Listen to this one. I hope someone hits you so hard that your teeth shatter in your mouth. In fact, I hope someone breaks your teeth by pulling them out. I'd I'd like to see your, your life run out like sewage in a gutter. I hope your life is pointless, meaningless, and amounts to nothing. I hope your life is swept away in a storm and that people's feet will be stained by your blood. Right. That's number one. Number two, destroy all these people who hate me. I hope their lives end up like animal dung piled up on the ground. I hope their lives are so filled with suffering that they are dishonored and whatever good name they have, they have earned will be destroyed. I hope their reputations will be ruined. And I hope their lives are filled with terror that they will be humiliated and then die. Somebody's thinking, I didn't post it, but I'm going to copy and paste that tomorrow. Last one is this. I hope your boss is wicked to you like you have been to me. I hope someone is always standing next to you accusing you of everything you do wrong, even if you are innocent. I hope you are found guilty. I hope God ignores your prayers. I hope you die young. I hope someone else takes your job and that you die so your children become fatherless. I hope your children are forced to roam the streets and beg for food. I hope creditors seize all of your possessions, leaving your family poor and penniless. I hope your descendants are erased from existence. Where did I read those? Somebody tell me. Yes, the Bible. No, not Facebook. No, let me me give you what they are. I modernized them a little bit, but I think if you look, you're going to say, yep, yep, that's pretty, Psalm 58 was the first one. Psalm 83 was the second one, and Psalm 109 was the third one. You're like, I don't think those are in my Bible. No, they are. They are. They are. It's, re- it's in there. They're called prayers of imprecation. and In fact, I would say they are a form of lament. They are a form of lament. If this word lament is new to you, it is a passion passionate expression of grief and sorrow. A passionate expression of grief and sorrow. I'm going to share with you, just as we get started tonight, some questions that I'm still sorting out. I talked a little bit about that last week, right? Sometimes in my sermons, I'm I'm trying to teach you some things that I feel like I have un, that I understand, but then sometimes I think I feel like part of my responsibility as a pastor is to invite you into my process and and my journey in life, and to be transparent and honest and vulnerable about things that I'm still trying to figure out myself, and then we go on a journey of kind of working it out together. And one of the questions that I'm asking myself is that: Is do we as a culture, have we lost our ability to understand the importance of a lament? Do, do we not have a cultural context that gives people some liberty when they lament? Do we even recognize a lament when it's happening? Right? Because when King David was writing these laments, he lived in a culture and a time where a lament was just a common part of the human experience. It was, it was expected. You, you, you knew that there were things that were in here that you needed to put out there. Because if you left them in here, it was not going to be good. That all of that emotion, all of that angst, even if it's ugly, it's, it's got to go from in here to out there. I think there are three kinds of laments. It's a slide that's going to pop up. I think that there are laments that are supposed to be in prayer. This, these are the questions I'm asking. This is the stuff I'm trying to figure out. I think there are laments that are supposed to be in prayer. I think there are laments that are supposed to be in person, and I think there are laments that are supposed to be in public. This is one of the questions I'm asking, and, and, and do we sometimes get those mixed up? See, I think this idea of laments in prayer which is really what these are, which is why they're called prayers of imprecation. They're published to model for us what's appropriate in our prayer life, meaning that there is no filter between you and God. Or let me say it this way. You don't have to have a filter between you and God. When when you have all of this angst inside of you and, and you say to yourself, well, maybe I shouldn't tell God about it, He already knows it's okay. You're not surprising him about anything. But what you will find is, as you talk about it, you're taking it from in here and you're putting it out there. And sometimes out there needs to be a moment of prayer where you are by yourself, where you are alone, where you're just snotty crying. Because you're just so angry or sad or confused or wounded, you bring it to him. There's no filter. You're not going to offend God. You're not going to shock him. You're not going to surprise him. In fact, he invites you into this place of permission. Come lament with me. Come lament with me. The one with in-person, I would say, this is one of the questions I'm asking, and so I'm sharing it with you. You decide whether or not you feel like you can agree. I think when you get to in-person, I think you have to pick up a little bit of a filter. I think, you have to, I think you have to be careful about the people that you choose to lament with because they might not be ready to hear the kinds of things that you might need to say. I think that it is a good moment of self-examination to ask yourself, do, do you have at least a handful of friends that you could go to and that you could share anything that's on your heart and they're going to keep your confidence, that they're going to cry with you, that they're not going to try to fix your problem, that they're just going to be willing to sit and listen? Whether you are a guy or whether you are a girl, you should have some people that you are close to that you know that you can call and you can lament with them. And when I say a filter, I'm not saying that you necessarily have to filter with that person. The filter is who is going to be the person that you talk to. Does that make sense? It can't just be that you're willing to unleash and unload that on anyone. This is the the question I'm asking. If a lament is supposed to heal me, is it okay when I share it that it harms someone else? Because I don't, I don't think, that's the question I'm asking. I don't think that if my lament, which is supposed to be restorative because it brings healing to me, I have to be careful about what the impact is, is going to be on someone else. And then I think the last one is this. I think some laments are supposed to be public. I do. I feel like they are, and I think that's part of the example of Psalms also. It is a prayer of imprecation, and I've got to trust and believe that David had all kinds of prayers of implication, and we've not been given all of them. But one of the reasons why it's in the book of Psalms is that, that these journals, were were they didn't just come available just recently, they were for the contemporaries of David. Not only are they an example of how we're supposed to pray. Not only are the example of sometimes how we're supposed to communicate with each other, but sometimes it's important for that lament to be brought into a public arena because sometimes a community as a whole needs to weep and needs to mourn and grieve together. But I think the filter, this is the question I'm asking. If we're going to bring our lament into a public space, I have to be willing. I feel like this is me. I'm going, to, I'm going to start trying to practice this, right? If I'm going to bring my lament into a public space, I've got to be willing to engage and participate in the conversations that my lament might provoke. I, I don't feel like for me personally that if I bring my lament into a public space that I can just dump it out there and withdraw. If I'm going to bring, I think this is the filter. If I'm going to bring it into the public space, I've got to be willing to participate in that public space. And if I don't feel like I'm able to participate in the public space and in the conversation that I'm going to provoke collectively in a community, then maybe my lament should stay in person or in prayer. These are the questions I'm asking. Part of this comes out of this idea of John 1, 12 through 13 that we've been talking about since last week. Let me read. I'm going to read out of the King James because I like how this one flows. I read multiple versions last week. But this is the King James version. It says, But as many as received him, speaking of Jesus, to them gave he power to become the sons, or in some translations, the children. It's the children of God. Sons there is a generic term for all people. Become the children of God, even to them that believe on his name. They are reborn, it says in verse 13, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or a human plan, but a birth that comes from God. I like that it says that, and gave that and to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Or the, it doesn't say the child of God, it says the children of God. It's plural for a reason. It's plural for a reason. Because when Jesus died on the cross, not only did he make a way for us to be reconciled to God, he made a way for us to be reconciled to each other. That that when I believe in who Jesus is, and I receive the gift of his forgiveness, which we're going to talk more about in a little while, that in that moment I am born into a relationship with him, but I'm also born into a relationship with other people. And and not only does this idea of being a devoted follower of Christ and following Jesus' example mean that there are things that I have to do as an individual, it means that there are things that I have to be willing to do as a community. Because it's plural. Listen to this statement. The original sin in Eden was a me-sin. The sin at the Tower of Babel was a we-sin. The original sin in Eden was a me-sin, and the sin at the tower of Babel was a we sin, Genesis one, Genesis eleven, verses one through four. At one time, all the people of the world spoke with the same language and used the same words. And as the people migrated to the east, they found a plain in a land, like a pasture land. In the land of Babylonia, and they settled there. This is post-Noah. So if you're new to the Bible, there's the story of the Garden of Eden, and then we get to the story of the flood in the ark. And then as we're moving on, they come out of the ark that Noah has Three sons, and then we get to Genesis ten. It gives us the descendants of each son. This is important because this gives us the context for eleven, and then eleven sets up Genesis twelve, which is really the springboard for everything else in the Bible. Because that's the introduction of Abram, who becomes Abraham. Verse three, it says they began saying to each other, "Let's or let us not, not let us." Make bricks and harden them with fire. In this region, bricks were used instead of stone, and tar was used for mortar. Then they said, come let us build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky, and this will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. Now, if you're like me, for many years you read this story as if this was all the people of all the earth. But this is what happens when we read the Bible as stories taken out of the context of all of Scripture. Right? It's also a good example of sometimes we never move past what we learned when we were kids. In story time, we have all these different stories of the Bible, and when we take them out of the context of the rest of Scripture, we miss so much. And so if you're like me for so many years, you would come to this, and you, and you thought this is talking about all the people of all the earth, but it's not. It drops into the timeline of the chapter before as, as some of the descendants of Shem, one of the three sons of Noah. Shem had a few sons. One of his sons eventually be, of, of those descendants became Abra, and Abra had two sons, Peleg and Joktan. This is important because Joktan is a line that sets up Babylon, and Peleg is the, sets up the Israelites. So Genesis 11 is contrasted with Genesis 12 as two different paths in this world, those that are for God and those that are against him. And in this moment where all the people speak one language, God comes in, and he says, as you continue reading, if we don't step in and do something, there is nothing that they will not be able to do because they are so united with each other. And here we have the introduction of different languages because God causes them in this moment, supernaturally, to speak different languages. And this is the birth of different language on the earth. But this isn't all the people of the earth. It's just one group of people on the earth. But in that moment, that began to spread throughout all of humanity. That's the right way to understand the Tower of Babel. But why would God say we need to stop their progress? We know that they were not going to be able to build a tower to the heavens. We know that's not physically possible. At some point, dudes are going to start passing out because the air gets too thin. right? We need to read the Bible in the context of of science because science is real too. We know that God didn't feel threatened by them. We understand the rest of Scripture, the sovereignty of God, the power of God. We know that God wasn't looking down at them and saying, they're becoming too much like me. We know that's not possible. I think what we find here is that God is trying to stop something I think we miss because we misunderstand what's happening in the story of the Tower of Babel. See, I think the we sin that we're observing here, this idea of us and ourselves making a name for ourselves, is God acknowledging that one of the great horrors of a we sin and one of the great horrors of an us sin is that we want to see ourselves and become better than everyone else. And I think as we track that through history, we find it to be true. It's that kind of mindset. It's those kind of ideologies that gave birth to slavery. It's those kind of mindsets and those kinds of attitudes and those kinds of ideologies that led to the Holocaust. When God is saying, hey, we've got to do something to slow this thing down, I think what he's saying is this us sin and this we sin of ethnic and racial superiority that we've got to pump the brakes on it because it can get ugly really fast. And you know what I'm fascinated by? That his answer to it was diversity. Because when you cause people to speak different languages, you're beginning to break those people up into different kinds of people groups. And eventually those people groups form their own cultures. Eventually they begin to live in different parts of the world. And because of the different parts of the world, it begins to affect the different ways that they look. So when you begin to read the Tower of Babel through this context, which I think is the right context, I think what we see is that God is saying There needed to be a multiplication of Imago Dei, an expansion of Imago Dei, to hold at bay the sin of us, which is self-superiority as a group of people. See, because I think every group of people in their own way, through their culture, through their unique customs, through the way that they look, through the way that they think, I think Imago Dei is not just an individual thing. I think it's a collective thing. I think that's why Revelation so often comes back to this idea that in heaven it's every nation and every tribe and every tongue. We don't pass through some sanitizing filter after we die on our way to heaven that cleanses us from the uniqueness of who we are here so we are all look the same there. There's nothing in Revelation that says that. I think we think that. Because the Bible story books we read as a kid, everybody looked the same. When we get to heaven, every nation, every tribe, and every tongue, because I think every nation and every tribe and every tongue in its own unique way, in its own beauty, shows something of God to the world that we don't have. The way that I look, the place that I live, the time in history I exist. All of us have been given a deposit of God that we bring to the world collectively together. I think it's important that when we read stories like this, that when God has a reaction, we have to remember that he's not being reactionary because of what we believe about his sovereignty. It does not surprise him. It does not catch him off guard. In the times where you read about God and his emotion, where he himself is emoting. How about with the Israelites? If we move forward in time after the Exodus, there's this conversation that he has with Moses, and God says, I'm just going to wipe them all out. I'm so frustrated with them, I'm just going to kill them all. If we're not careful, we can get to that moment and think that he's being reactionary. I don't think he's being reactionary. I think he's showing us that he's a God who feels and that he, too, is a God who emotes. Even though he knew it was going to happen, he feels so deeply for people, it affects him. That makes me love God even more. For me, that doesn't take away from his divinity. I think that's part of what makes him divine. God's never reactionary. When you read in the story of the Tower of Babel, what do you see? I think it is a moment in time. It is a historical marker in the story of the Bible where His Imago day becomes even more apparent, where, where who He is in heaven is unleashed onto the world all the more. Acts 2, 1 through 13, on the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. And then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. And at that time, here it comes, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. See, what began at the Tower of Babel is now coming to completion here in Acts chapter 2. These are, these are two bookends in a moment in history. And at that time, there were devout Jews from, Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. And when they heard the loud noise, everyone came running and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How could this be? They exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are, Parthians and Mede and Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the areas of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. And we all hear these people speaking our own languages about the wonderful things that God has done. Come on. Come on. One day, God knew the church would be the place where people of all cultures and languages and ethnicities would come back together, having been reconciled to himself through Jesus and to take the message of the gospel to the whole world through their respective culture and practice and language. Babel happened, but Jesus had a plan, and it's called the church, where we would all come back together, that as they were scattered what he was trying to confuse was sin, but what he was also doing at the same time, he was preparing us to step back through some moment in time that would one day come, which was on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the death of Jesus, that we would come back together and share the Imago day collectively and bring a full witness of who God is to the world. Each of us having a distinct and unique understanding of him through our customs and our practices. Kevin Graves is a new missionary that we're supporting monthly. We met him through Elam Fellowship, and if you were here over the every weekend in June, we were giving you a financial update, and we were also sharing with you all the missionaries that we're supporting. He's he's up there, and he operates in in Asia out of Singapore. He wrote this little book that he gave to me when I met him, and it tells the story of the gospel through Chinese characters. And he said years ago, decades ago, when he felt called to Asia, he knew he was going to have to learn a language, and as he began to study Chinese, which is character-based, right? It's these little characters that many of you have tattoos, and you don't know what they mean. Chinese is character-based. Chinese is a pictorial language, but as he began to study Chinese, he began to see that the story of the Bible is in their language. They didn't intend it to be, but that's how God works. He hides it in every culture because that's part of what was going on at the Tower of Babel. He was releasing Imago Dei into the world in ways that had never been seen before, This right here is the Chinese character, which maybe is hard to see right here, for covet. It means to covet. And it is the Chinese character of a woman beneath two trees. Well, that sounds like the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? And as you begin to look through these Chinese characters, he began to realize the entire story of the gospel can be told through the characters of the Chinese language right? It's incredible that here's a culture that's atheistic by nature, that in the language that they speak, God hits some things. So when someone comes to begin to tell them about the gospel, it's in the language that they know. That's what was set into motion in Genesis chapter 11. Releasing Imago Dei in the world, so that one day that when we would all come back together under the banner of Jesus through the local church, that we would all bring the story that we have of who God is, and we would be able to take that story together into the whole world and be understood, and be understood. This is one of the reasons why I'm passionate about City Life being a multicultural church. I am. I feel like I'm called to it. I feel like this is part of my assignment and purpose in life. And if you're here, I hope that you feel called to it too. Some days when we wake up to it, though, especially as pastors, it's just like we're whipping ourselves. Like multicultural church should be called monastic church. It's entering into intentional pain and suffering. It's harder to lead lead a community of people that are different from each other because even though we share something through our Imago Dei, There are also cultural practices that we just developed that are part of the human experience. And those things are always going to be at odds and holding each other in attention. Sometimes we do good with that tension. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we understand the lament that someone else is bringing to a public space. Sometimes we don't. That's why last week I was talking so much about when you see things and hear things that trouble you, that you don't like, that rubs you the wrong way, step into a circle of curiosity before you step into a circle of concern. Because if you step into a a circle of curiosity, I've been practicing this myself over these last few months, what I'm finding is I'm less concerned less often. Curiosity draws me into relationship with people, concern pulls me away. I believe one of the ways that we're going to make Jesus known in our city because we have this dream, right, that we're saying we're going to share and together here at City Life Church, we want Jesus to be easy to find here. We want Jesus to be easy to find here in the 757. Part of that is going to be by me making others known who don't look like me because through their culture and through their story, through their cultural norms, and I would say even through their lament, Something of God will be revealed to the world that my imago day and my experience and my journey and my lament is lacking. Something begins to happen when we begin to lean into one another as opposed to pulling away from one another. I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm inviting you to join me in doing it. John 1. 12 and 13, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the children of God, even to them that believe on his name. See, this is our condition when we're born into the world right here. This has been part of the series When you and I are born into this world, we're born into our humanity, and we will spend too much of my time, our time, I know I did, trying to do good works, trying to think good thoughts, trying to be good people, because something inside of us innately, something inside of us longs to be with him. Even before we know what it is, the feeling is there, it's why the Bible, I'm not going to go there for the sake of time. Our notes are always uploaded onto the website the following week, so you can go there and see all these references. But in, in John 4, it talks about this ache inside of your soul, and it talks about it as a thirst. In John 6, it talks about it as a hunger. In John 3, when it talks about being born again, I think the, what, what Jesus is trying to say there is this is the ache of acceptance that we all long for. Well, why does the Bible talk about it in these terms? Because Jesus is drawing from the human experience of our physical bodies, of our emotions, and he's trying to say there's something inside of you that is eternal that has similar kinds of longings and desires. And the reason why you have them is because you're born into this world separated from God because of the meson of Adam and Eve that we're born into there's something inside of me that longs to be reconciled to my Creator. Our deepest desire in this world is to know God and to be known by Him. Some of you are feeling it right now. Some of you watching online at home, you've never heard someone put it into words and you're saying, That's it. That's what I've been chasing. There's something inside of me that wants to know God and to be known by Him. And I've been chasing this and that and the other, and nothing ever fully satisfies. It's because there's something inside of you that longs to know God and to be known by Him. I heard someone say this phrase recently. I'm going to start using it a lot more. I like it. You are an immortal, eternal being created by God to live and rule and reign with Him for an eternity. Let me say that again. When you were were born into this world, you were born as an eternal, immortal being created by God to rule and reign and live with Him for all eternity. That's why that longing is inside of you. Because that's what you were created to ultimately do. That's who you were created to ultimately be. And so that ache that you have to know God and to be known by Him flows from your identity, maybe that you didn't even know that you had. But just like God had a plan for what happened with Babel, God had a plan for what happened in Eden. Come on. Acts 4.12 says that there's no other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. There's no other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. That next slide is going to come up. See, God had a plan for what happened in Eden, and it's called the cross. See, we sin is a real thing, but me sin is a real thing too. It's a real thing too. And I would argue that if all the things that I've shared with you up until this point have inspired you because you feel like I want to be a part of revealing to the world who God is through my Imago day, If, when you look back over to the story of your life, you can't find a moment in time where you've made a vow of devotion to Jesus. We need to back up to there and do that so that you can get started with the other. John 1, 12 through 13. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the children of God, even to them that believe on his name They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. Jesus on the cross is God's answer for the sin that Adam and Eve set into motion. I love moments like this in our service. Pastor David, who got up here, that's who shared about the, the proposal stories. He, he had no idea what I was going to be preaching about, had no idea this moment that I was going to come to. But the moment that I got to here in my sermon is that I wanted you to imagine Jesus as a groom kneeling before you, asking for your hand in marriage. Come on. The whole time he's up here, I was like, who gave him my notes without me knowing? Yeah, the Holy Spirit, because that's what he does. Now, this might be hard for you as a dude, but what I would say, just get over it, right? Our false sense of an Americanized masculinity, just do not let it get in the way. The Bible says that we are the bride of Christ, right? It's powerful, which means that if you are married or you have been married, and you have this proposal experience as part of your story, can I just tell you, there, is a, there are moments in your life, if you're watching from on home, wherever you are, there are moments in your life where Jesus gets down on a knee. What? Come on. Doesn't the Bible say that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess? It will. But you know what Jesus is doing throughout history until that moment? He's getting on his knee for you and for me. And he says to you, Come on, will you marry me? He looks up into your eyes. He looks deep into your soul. And he holds out his hand. Maybe you can imagine him holding out a ring itself that he wants to put on your finger. And he's asking you to step into a covenant relationship with him for the rest of your life. For the rest of your life. There is something inside of you that you were born with a longing to know God and to be known by him. And Jesus says, I can take you to that place. You are born into this world, an immortal, eternal being created by God to live and rule and reign with him for all eternity. And Jesus says to you and to me, let's go do it together. And when we step into that covenant relationship, it doesn't take very long before you realize that he says to you and to me, now let's go tell the world about it. How many of you, when you got married, on the drive out of the reception, looked at your spouse and each other and says, let's not tell anybody about this. Yeah, nobody. There's something inside of you that says, I just want the world to know that we're in love. Can we just say that's what Jesus wants for you and me? That if you step into this moment of a covenant relationship with him, can we just agree there's something inside of you that you feel like, I just want the world to know. Because he wants to bend his knee in front of them too. Stand with me. He wants to bend his knee in front of them too. So I just want to create a moment of privacy. Can we do this in the service? If you're watching online, if you're in a living room, just give each other some permission. I think one of the great ways to do that is just to have everybody close their eyes in this moment. Let's just do it. And if you're watching in your living room, you're in your kitchen, your back deck, just do this with us. Even if it feels awkward, just for this moment, just close your eyes together. Close your eyes together. I just want to ask, we just want to come to this moment. As you look back over to the story of your life, can you find a moment in time where you've made a vow of devotion to Jesus? If you can't find that moment, I'm just going to ask you to slip up your hand where you are. just going to linger in this moment just for a minute. As you look back over the story of your life, can you find the moment where Jesus got down on a knee for you? Because if you can't, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand where you are. This could be your best July 4th weekend ever. If you're watching from on home, I can't see into your living room, but we know that God can. That's good. Come on, I see your hand back there. You can put that down. This this is what I want to ask you to do. If, If you're at home and you raised your hand, if you're here and you raised your hand, I want to invite you. This is the step. I'm not, going to, I'm not going to force you to do it. I'm asking you to do it. In the same way, nobody should be forced into marriage. Jesus doesn't want to force you either. It's an invitation. I'm going to pray in just a minute, and we're going to let you go, but there are going to be some people that are down here at the front. I'm going to stay down here. I don't know if I'm scheduled to pray or not, but I'm going to hang out down here for a little while too. If you raised your hand, I'm going to invite you to come down and talk with me because I want to talk with you more about it. If, if, if you're watching as part of our online experience, there's a button that you can push on the screen no matter what platform that you're in to ask for prayer. And you can go into a private chat room with one of our hosts. They want to talk more with you about what it means to say yes to Jesus. Father, I know that for us here in America, this weekend is part of our tradition. It's part of our celebration. It's remembering our freedom. It's saying thank you to all of the military that are even in this room right now that have paid such a big price and are paying such a big price now for us to know the freedom that we have. But we also know that this is an incredible weekend for us to remember, Jesus, what you did for us on the cross. That there is another freedom that we're desperate for. There's another freedom that we need to find. That there is an ache and a longing and a desire to know you and to be known by you. So, Jesus, we say thank you for what you did on the cross. Thank you for making a way. And may it be that every person that raised their hand tonight, that they're going to find the courage that they need to find to come and talk with someone in this moment. And help us all, Jesus, as your disciples, to follow your example, to live a life that just keeps saying, no, 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 no. After you. After you help us to make room for one another, believing and knowing and trusting that there's something of you, their imago day, that the world needs. Help me to shine a light on someone that's different than me because of how they're going to reveal you to the world. In Jesus' name, come on and everybody sit together. Amen.